Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. This week, Roger is joined by Andy Putzer, the former CEO of CKE Restaurants, where he helped turn Hardee's and Carl's Jr. into globally known fast food powerhouses. Putzer is a frequent lecturer on economics and politics and is a senior fellow at the Pepperdine School of Policy. He's authored multiple books, the most recent of which was titled It's Time to Let America Work Again. Putzer and Roger discuss why capitalism works, his time as CEO at CKE Restaurants, and the current debate around minimum wage and government stimulus spending. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Andy Putzer, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. Pleasure to be here. And it's great to have you at the Reagan Institute. Uh, we've had a lot of virtual participants in the show for the past year, uh, but now that you're double vaxxed, as they say, double vaxxed. Uh, it's great that you were able to make the trip into D.C. And, free and, again, free again. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, we're all, uh, those of us who are vaccinated enjoying that freedom, and uh, it's great to be here in the uh, Sutton Family Auditorium. So much I want to get into today, uh, you being a uh, fascinating career, um, certainly most well-known uh, for your time as CEO of the parent company for Hardee's and Carl's Jr. But let's start with the beginning, which gave you uh, those kind of early experiences uh, and insight to kind of the free market economy. When did it begin for you to click and to realize that was something that you'd be passionate about and understood the importance of? Well, I, I think um, my first real exposure was uh, when my dad took me to deliver a car. My dad, we grew up, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, working class family. Um, and we lived on the east side of Cleveland. And my dad was a Ford car salesman. And one day he asked me if I, I'm about 10 years old, so it's 1960. He asked me if I'd like to go with him to deliver a car uh, to one of his uh, one of his customers, uh, which was unusual because normally the customer would come to the dealership. You go to the dealership, yeah. right? Okay. But this was like a really really rich customer. Okay. And actually, we we lived in a place called Russell, Ohio, about 15 miles east of Cleveland. It was a, a World War II suburb. A lot of those little uh, you know ranch houses right. that you, you see now they look so old. Back then they were all brand new. Uh, but it, we lived in this little house, maybe 2,000 square feet. And at that point, it was my mom, my dad a younger brother and a younger sister. Uh, and I, but I told my dad I'd go with him. It's only a couple miles away. A couple miles away from us was this incredibly rich area called Hunting Valley, uh, where- The other side of the track, huh? Really wealthy, <laughs> re it, it, it was really, but really wealthy people lived okay. there. And as I said, we were working class, but I never really thought about myself as working class. Back then, everybody seemed to be working class. The kids in school were working sure. class. Kids on TV were working class. Well, the post-World War II middle class. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but but this this was my exposure to a new world. So I so I got in the new car with my dad, drove to this house, a couple of miles away on River Road, and uh, where River Road and Fairmont Road meet, if you're from Cleveland, and the we pull up to this gate. Now I don't 
this was probably the first house I ever saw with the gate. I mean, this thing, <laughs> and I, I don't know if it was as big as I remember, but in my mind, it was like a 20 foot tall gate. Right. And we pull up and, the, and it opens up and there's this driveway to this beautiful white house with this manicured lawn. And, uh, and I'm thinking, wow, who, who lives in the, you know, compared to our ranch house, man, this is like a palace. So we're pulling in, we're looking at South Center, and my dad kind of turns off to the right. I said, well, Dad, Dad, where are you going? Why didn't we stop? At, and, and my dad looks down at me and says, son, that was the guest house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. So we, we keep driving. We go by these stables. And this, the guy that owned the place, his name was Humphrey. Uh, okay. And he owned, uh, he had these, these stables with horses. Hunting Valley was a big, uh, they had horse jumps and a polo field. Uh, you know, really, the horses look like they lived in a nicer place than we did. I mean, it was nicer than the ranch house. Then we pull around to this beautiful mansion. Um, and again, I don't know if it's as big as I remembered. In my mind's eye, it was like sure. Downton Abbey, you know, but it might have been smaller. Uh, we go, my dad goes up to the front door. I go with him. Uh, he talks to Mr. Humphrey. They got along well. And they're, they're trading keys. And we're walking back to the to the other car to drive the trade-in back to the house. And I said, you know, I'm just stunned by the wealth. I, it just, just blew me away. I said to my dad, I said, uh, you know, what, what does Mr. Humphrey do that he can live in a house like this? And my dad said, well, son, he's a lawyer and, and he owns a business. And I, I can still remember thinking that at that moment, um, it's like it was yesterday, <laughs> you know, a, a lawyer, you know, you know I, I could be a lawyer. <laughs> Right. And, you know, nobody in my family had anything but a high school education. My grandparents came over from, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. My dad went and fought in World War II. Uh, but I thought, you know, I, I could be a lawyer. And I, and I think it's important that I thought that, mm -hmm. right? I think it's important that that occurred to me. I think what's more important is what I didn't think. You know, I didn't think that son of a bitch is stealing from us. You know, right. he's in the top 1% and who knows what percent we're in. There's no resentment. He's a part. robber baron. You know, right, what an right. evil guy he is. Why does he have so much and we have so little? You know, none, none of that occurred to me. What occurred to me was, you know, you know maybe I could do this. And, uh, and everything in your education suggested that you could. There's yes. no one who told you you couldn't. No, my parents told me I could do anything I wanted. And, uh, you know, but it, 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 and it, you know, look, in fact, I went on and became a lawyer. And, and became owner. the CEO of, uh, you know, of an international corporation that did $4 billion in revenue my last year and, um, and had restaurants in 45 states and 40 foreign countries. But I never could have done that but for growing up in a capitalist free enterprise uh, uh, society. Because had we, had I been born, and, and really Reagan was the same way, he came from the Midwest sure. and probably had a similar experience. But if you if either of us had been born in a socialist country or a country with a collectivist economy, the idea of, of lifting yourself from the working class to a higher class, you know, one probably never would have occurred to us. And if it had to occur to us, it would have seemed like an impossible dream. So th this that was really my first exposure to, you know, I could do something more with my life than, than maybe than my father had and done. And your sense of the system, even at a small age, is one that the pie could grow. It wasn't a choice between, you know, that property that you visited having to be divided up to make room for you, right? Um, versus not 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 being able to achieve that. But your career, I want to dwell on it a little bit longer because people who know of you as a nominee for labor secretary, your appearances on TV and and thought pieces may not be familiar with a bit of a serpentine path. Uh, certainly, <laughs> educational years, yeah. uh, you know, before you uh, left the world of law and became the successful CEO. I mean. 
yeah, you were the you kind of first in your family to go to college, but you had to pull out of school because college was too expensive and you ran out of money. I did run out of money. And, um, and really, I didn't know what to do. I ended up playing in bands for three years uh, and got a job in a music. I also, also painted houses and uh, I mean, did I, I cut lawns. Uh, You're landscaping? I, yeah, I did. Uh, I had a chainsaw and went and removed tree. We had a tree removal. This business. is during, during college. When you got this was during college and in the break to try and get enough. I wanted to get enough money to go back to college. Uh, so you started off Penn State, had to pull out, yep. did the band, instrumented yep. guitar. I got that right? Uh, guitar, bass, vocals. I okay. could sing. That that helped. We can get some, we're not going to get that. We're not going to no, get no, that today. No. Okay. No, I could. I said could. I didn't say can. <laughs> okay, I said past could. Tense. Yeah. Okay. And, and did you, um, and what kind of the music? What, what kind of band? Oh, rock and roll. You know, we did, uh, we did, it was cover bands. We, we didn't do, uh, none of the bands I was in did a lot of original material. We had a little, you always had a little original and material. And this is all a means to get enough capital to get back into school. Well, if I had become a rock and roll star, I think I probably would have gone on and lived with that. But yeah, right, so right. the ultimate goal was, and there were, you know, Cleveland. Then you really would have corrected you know, the Reagan trajectory if you would have gone, you know, like uh, stardom. Could have been. I, you know, I mean, Cleveland was the hotbed of rock and roll. You know, that's where that's the, the Hall of Fame, right? Yeah, I, used to, I mean, I jammed with the James Gang that had Joe Walsh in it at the time. And there, there, were, there were a lot of great, uh, great people in Cleveland. We opened for some great bands um, when I was there. Uh, it was it was fun, and it, but I you know I always knew I wanted to do something different. And then you went see, so uh, had enough money, did the side jobs summers, to get your undergrad degree at Cleveland State, right? Right. I went back to school. I got married um, and went back to school. Um, marriage and having kids will do that to you. Uh, was, <laughs> I realized right. that this rock and roll thing was not a long time <laughs> career path. Uh, but went back to school, graduated, and you know did it while, while I was supporting. <laughs> I thought it was tough doing it when I was single. I know I'm, I've got a wife and a kid. And then and by the time I graduate college, I've got a wife and two kids. And uh, I was working uh, full-time, going to school full-time. I uh, took a summer off, went to law school at Washington University in St. Louis um, and worked my way through law school. I worked- So that's um, when you made the migration from Ohio to Missouri. To St. Louis, yes. Right. And um, first summer I was there, I worked uh, construction. I busted up concrete with a jackhammer, threw the chunks on the back of a truck, and on days when it rained, I, I had printed up, a, I had typed up a, a resume and I had to actually type a bunch of copies. They didn't have Xerox machines there. Sure. So you type them and did blueprint paper, but I typed up a bunch and I went to every law, a law firm I could find in rainy days in St. Louis and Clayton, Missouri and handed out my resume. I finally got a job at the law office of Morris A. Schenker uh, filing. They, they knew somebody. a pretty well-known lawyer, right? And this is yeah, a, he's a very famous criminal attorney. I didn't actually know that at the time. You're uh, just going wherever you can get the I job. I just went everywhere. And they, they find I got a job there. They needed somebody to organize some files. Well, it turned out it was the files for the Dunes Hotel. And by the time I'd organized them, I was the only guy who knew where anything was. This is the so, Vegas Hotel. Yeah, yeah. So I just it, now now it's where it used to be where the Bellagio is now. They tore down the Dunes and put in the Bellagio. Um, but I was the only guy who knew where the files were. were. So I got a job there until I actually worked there from 1976 in August while I was in law school till uh, February of 1984. And I went with a so, different so firm. That, that, that worked out so well. Post-law post school, uh, that's where you began your legal career. I did. They, they, I had offers from large firms. This was a small firm, about 15 lawyers. And I, I had offers from a big firm in Chicago and a big firm in oh, St. Washington Louis. is a great law school. I mean. it, it, it is a great law school. Uh, and, but, uh, but they were going to let me try lawsuits at Checker's office. The other places I'd have been a yeah. pre-trial lawyer. I'd have been sitting in a library. So you're really doing the, the, the real lawer thing. I in, wanted to in, be in the courtroom. I wanted to try cases, and uh, and I did get to try cases. It was, 
a great experience. I actually ended up being Maury Schenker's lawyer. Uh, I represented I him in a bunch of, of lawsuits he had out west, and he would sit next to me and tell me what to do while I'm I'm trying. So it <laughs> was a good thing when your clients coaching you how to how to how to uh, well, litigate the case. Well, you had one of the top lawyers in the country sitting next to you, tutoring you on not what thing. you're doing to try. No, and it it was uh, it was huge. Well, it was another client of yours. He's that, a great guy. I was, I was just going to move to to clearly another important mentor and person in your life, which is uh, a client who brought brought you out to California and you and essentially you left a law firm life and became his personal lawyer, which led to your time at, at uh, Carl's Jr. And, and Hardy's, right? That's right. It was Carl Karcher, who was the founder of Carl's Jr. And he actually got sued in Missouri. And somebody who knew me recommended me, somebody who knew me in California. Uh, but I lived in St. Louis. I didn't live in Kansas City. And I didn't know who Carl was either when, he, when his, his lawyer called, his lawyer in California and said, um, you know, we'd like you to represent Carl Karcher. And I said, well, send me a retainer of 10 grand and I'll do a, a conflicts check and we'll see. And, and so, you know, the check came the next day. I so thought, you had a retainer for him. I said, well, this, guy's, this guy's pretty good. I had <laughs> checked the next you had day. a Google machine back then, you probably would have been <laughs> so insistent on the retainer. Yeah, if I, had a, if I had Google, I would have been immediately taken him as a client. Right, but anyway, right, right. We, we obviously we won the case and uh, he asked me, his lawyer retired and he called and said, you know, we got along so well uh, he was obviously he was involved in the pro-life movement. He was Catholic. He was from Ohio. He right. was seventy. This was nineteen eighty-seven. He was seventy, so I was thirty-seven. You know, age difference, but we got along super well. You mentioned you mentioned the pro-life movement. Obviously, uh, those who have followed your career uh, and certainly your um, participation in public life, that's really where uh, you became known earlier on. Since then, obviously, a lot of this economic policy and and and, and labor issues. Um, did that, was that something that you developed together or it really started in, in Missouri when you're practicing law? It, uh, you know, I, 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 so when I started working at Schenker's office, <clears throat> Morris said, look, you need to go try some cases, you know, go out there, find something you can do where you're in court. Pro and, bono. Yeah, pro bono. And so I went to, I was at mass and they were handing out leaflets for, people had been arrested sitting in at, at the local abortion clinic, uh, reproductive health services. And I said, hey, you know, rather than contributing to their legal defense fund, I'll just contribute a legal defense. So I got a hold of the people who were mentioned in the leaflet. I volunteered. I ended up, gosh, I ended up probably tried 20 of these sit-in cases. One of them all, by the way. That, I mean, it was... Uh, it on the was, grounds of they were exercising their constitutional rights. You know, on, or? On, the, on the There was something called the justification defense. Still mm -hmm. is which is that you can violate a law if you're achieving a higher moral purpose. For example, if there were a trespass sign on the lawn uh, and you, as you were walking by somebody's lot and somebody was about to stab somebody else, you could go violate the trespass law and save that person's life. And then you, you couldn't be prosecuted. Yeah. So I used that defense. I went in. Was that novel? Was that what they recommended uh, the lawyers to use in those days? There were two or three of us that came up with this and were using huh. it in St. Louis. And uh, it actually became kind of a national thing. But we, uh, we went in and proved life began at conception, sure. brought in the medical evidence. There was really never any contrary medical evidence. And got case after case dismissed until they took it up on appeal. Uh, the, appeal it, the appeals court eventually ruled against the defense. Uh, and also some trial courts issued injunctions, which this didn't work for an injunction when people were enjoined from going. Sure. So those cases kind of died out. But, but that's how it started. And then it, but by, but by proving, that life begins at conception at these trials and realizing the medical scientific evidence was uncontroverted, 
that I, I said, you know, I, we, we could have a law that says human life begins at conception. And that, that started all the states. Yes, but, it, but, it, but, but just have it apply for criminal law, tort law, where personal injury, sure. or trust in the states, right? So, and say that human life begins at conception under, under a state's law um, for these, in these various instances. And, and it applies everywhere except where the Supreme Court says it doesn't. And then you would avoid having it held unconstitutional, but you'd get the idea out there that human life began a conception. And then despite Roe v. Wade, these laws really uh, withstood challenges. Yeah, and it, well, uh, we got it passed in Missouri. Jim Talon, a good buddy of mine who was eventually a U.S. Senator, got it through the House. And we got it passed, uh, and, uh, and the Supreme Court upheld it in 1989. Uh, so it was, it, was, uh, it was actually a lot of fun to do. So, that. so that's your kind of public persona as you're actually entering the world of business distinct from the world of law, you end up becoming CEO of the company uh, of your former client. And uh, this big company actually was having some significant financial challenges and, and you turn it around and it becomes a huge success. Tell us about what actually happened with Carl Jr. and Hardy's and how you turned around. Of course, this is probably something that takes hours and I'm asking you to do it in seconds. Uh, and then to make it even more impossible, um, how you started absorbing the lessons of business and kind of markets and kind of developing your own kind of political outlook towards economic policy. Well, I, um, I became general counsel for the company, uh, apart from representing Carl, I became general counsel for the corporation in 1997. And one of the first things that we did after I became general counsel was Carl's Jr., which was about a thousand restaurants, bought Hardee's, which was about 2000 restaurants. And um, small and, guy buying the bigger guy. Yeah, and I was also general counsel for another company called Fidelity National Financial, which was the, um, which was a large uh, title insurance company. And the the person who was chairman of Fidelity invested in CKE restaurants. Kind of got Carl out of some personal financial trouble and made me general counsel of both companies. Um, and after we bought Hardee's, I kind of went away and uh, did some work for Fidelity. And while I was doing that, the company got in a lot of trouble. And they got in trouble uh, by trying to turn Hardee's into Carl's, and then they lost focus on Carl's. And actually, things that I had in a, in a meeting early on recommended against. So bad business decisions in terms of branding yeah. and how to integrate. And I, I had said you shouldn't turn Carl, Hardee's into Carl's Jr. People aren't going to know what Carl's Jr. is in the Midwest and Southeast. I grew up there. Everybody that was involved in this was from California. And I said, <laughs> this is a bad idea. People are going to say, you know, who's Carl Jr. and where's my Hardee's? And that's what happened. The political maxim, all restaurants are local. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and they, they each had brand equity in their own market. Right. So uh, they tried that. It failed. Uh, there was a, a big, the, the stock went, literally went from $42 to two. It's a publicly traded company. Yeah, it was a New York Stock Exchange company. It went from 42 to two. And, uh, I, you know, but I didn't do it. I, I went to the shareholders meeting. This is the year 2000. And, you know, I walked in, hell, I, you know, I had my suit and tie. And I was thinking what joke I would tell. I was the secretary. So when they counted the votes, you know, I wanted right, to have something right, to say. Right. I said, the company's in trouble, but I didn't get in trouble. I told them not to do this. <laughs> you know, so I walked in, the, the directors are kind of in the corner and Bill Foley, who was the chairman, calls me. Bill says, come here, Andy. I went over and said, uh, so what? He said, well, uh, you're going to be the, the CEO of Hardee's. It happened after the shareholders meeting. Or it was at, at, it was before. The, really? Yeah. I said, I'm going to be what? He said, you're going to be the, the CEO of, uh, of Hardee's. Uh, and Byron Allenbaugh, who ran Ralph's Market back then, came over and said, no, Bill, 
you know, your team had its chance. If he's going to be the president of Hardy, he's going to be president and CEO. He said, you're going to be the president. Byron said, no, he's got to be president and CEO. And Bill laughed and said, okay, you're the president and CEO of Hardy's. I said, why? And they also said, well, you were the only guy that knew this wouldn't work. <laughs> so, so anyway, that, I mean, was, that was just based on your own instinct, your own experience. Yeah. And it, it was counter to all the smart business types who, who kind of had formulas for yes. why it would be profitable the other way. And so I was the CEO of Hardee's from that day forward. They elected me at the meeting. And then- um, so How'd you turn it around? You well, first of all, they made yeah. me CEO of both companies right. that September. So this June Hardee's, I started to turn that around and they said, well, we'll just, you just take over the whole company. So September, I became CEO of the whole thing. And what we did was I took the company, uh, it, it had a very diversified focus. In other words, they were trying to sell burgers to women, kids, old guys, young guys, everybody. I said, no, no, we, we got to have a focus. I said, we can't compete with McDonald's for women and kids. They'll, they'll kill us. They get, you know, we've got 3,000 restaurants. They've got 13,000 restaurants. They got a lot more ad dollars. So I focused the company on big, juicy, delicious burgers. Uh, and we focused our advertising on young, hungry guys. We made bigger burgers. We went with half-pound burgers. Most fast food places have these hockey puck burgers. <laughs> we had, ours looked like you made it on the grill, and we charbroiled it, tasted like you made it on the grill. So all the, once we, we focused very directly on big, juicy, delicious burgers and young, hungry guys, and sales of both branches took off. And they took off internationally. What, is, what, what does took off mean? It means that your average unit volume that we were doing at Hardy's, we were doing about 800 thousand a year, which you want to do at least a million. Okay. And by the time I left, we were at about a million two fifty. And every year it just sort of went up, went up like this. Those board meetings were probably a lot more fun. Yeah. Yeah. After that first couple of years, the board meetings were a lot more fun. But, but you guys went private. You took it off the, the public well, exchanges in, in and two, then it was a private equity buy, right? Yeah. In 2008, which is when I started to get an interest in these economic issues, yeah. uh, it, uh, we elected uh, President Obama. And when he started talking about what he was going to do with the economy and his plans, I went to a couple of investment banker friends of mine and I said, uh, let's go private because I, I really, I don't want to be a public company CEO with this guy as president. Wait, wait. President of the United States gets elected. I mean, before he's implemented his policies, he just talked about the campaign or maybe yeah. even a year or two into it. And you say, let's leave the public markets because... Why? Because you want to have more flexibility and control. You don't want to be subject to well, no, it was regulation more, that comes with it. It was more that um, the, uh, the 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 value of the stock market had, had collapsed, mm -hmm. as you may recall, and and um, pushed forty three, beginning of forty four. Yeah, right. And and I did. I I I was concerned that the price of the stock would get so low that one of these, you know, a Nelson Peltz, a Carl Icahn, you know, one of these guys. Right. That uh, that that go in and and pick up these yeah, the raiders would, yeah. would 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 buy us for a very inexpensive price. Got it. And really kind of hurt the show. And I and what Obama, Obama was talking Call about market activists, right? Isn't that the word for yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there there are other words, but those. And, and by the way, Nelson Peltz is a friend of mine. I'm not saying anything bad about Nelson. He's a <laughs> right. good guy. We've been. Friends you didn't for want a long it, You time. didn't want to be bought. Yeah, I, I actually talked to Nelson about the possibility, but we never came to a deal. But I. I didn't want to be bought involuntarily. Right, right. Yeah, I didn't want to be taken Hostile over. takeover. And I, I thought that would be bad for the shareholders, the employees, the franchisees. It would have been bad for everybody. So I said, let's just go private. So we went private um, in in uh, the summer of 2010 with Apollo Investments. They bought us. They owned us for three years. Uh, sold us at a, at a good price to another private equity firm, Rourke Capital, which owns the company to, to this day. There was something when I was looking at the, the story, it was, I thought, unusual that a CEO, in this case, you, 
remain CEOs for each of these stages. I mean, the way I think of a private equity firm is they come in, buy a company, make it more profitable, kick out the CEO, put their own management team in. Um, sounds like it was just obviously the difference. No, they, they actually, yeah, they, both Apollo and Rourke insisted they wouldn't do the deal unless I agreed to stay in. Because it, it would, because it's a profitable company. Yeah, and and, uh, and they thought they could build it with me and our management team. Now, I ended up retiring in 2016, which was three years after Rourke bought it. I stayed on until 2016. Uh, and, and and really, I, I it was three years, and th they didn't ask me to retire. I, at that point, I was 65 years old, and I took over the company when I was 50. Right. Right. So I, I'm about to be 66. So I, I ran about 16 years, and I realized in, in 2015 I was I really didn't know what young hungry guys wanted anymore. Hmm. I knew when I was 50. But something changed with the millennial generation. Your, your feel for what the market was Yeah, demanding. it used to be with our ad agency, the, I'd go in and the ad agency would say, you know, here's three ads we could do. And I'd say, do two. <laughs> you know, this is, and uh, they say, Here, here's who we could use in the ad. I would say, use her or use him. Um, it, by 2015 or 16, things, it wasn't that our ads didn't work anymore, price, but it started to kind of slow down. And I was going to these meetings with the ad agency and they were saying, well, here's three ads we can do. And I was saying, well, what do you think we should do? <laughs> and so, right. so, and I realized when I, first time I did that, I realized, you know, it's, I think we need somebody younger. I think we need a young, hungry guy in here to manage this thing. Uh, so I retired in, uh, in, well, I retired. I told them I wanted to retire in January of 2016. Uh, they asked me to stay on until they found the new CEO. I thought it would be by the summer. Well, it took till April of 2017. You know, so I ended up being there a lot longer than I thought I was well, going I mean, to be. From an average CEO standpoint, certainly a high profile company got that many years. I mean, in the helm has is, is got to be exhausting. So we talked about your rise in, in corporate America, leaving the world of law, actually doing what you first thought about as a young kid, seeing the yeah, other side funny, of the tracks, lawyer, business. Uh, your first entree into, into public policy was the pro-life movement and your work as a lawyer. But you know, towards the end of your career as, as a CEO, your time as CEO, you really start engaging more on, uh, you know, the free market, uh, talking more about economic policy, labor policy. Uh, clearly in our conversation, 2008 with the election of Barack Obama, it, it solidified in many respects, some of your, your thinking on this. So much we talk about is, is our system of government and, and the economic system uh, versus socialism. Uh, and in the years since, you spent a lot, lot of time focusing on it. Your experience as CEO, you're talking to students, which you do across the country. What are the top couple, two, three things you want to impart? Whether they come in agreeing with you because they're part of YAF, uh, or you're on campus with students who are not seeing the world the way any other sees it. I think the most important thing to, to get students to understand is uh, is that capitalism is not a system that's based on greed, and it, you know it all goes back to that Gordon Gecko character in Wall Street. You might remember where greed is good. Well, I, and I think that's that's sort of Hollywood's version and the news media's version right. of capitalism. But greed isn't good, and capitalism isn't based on greed. What capitalism is based on uh, is your ability to satisfy the needs of other people. Now, if you think about it, if you're running whatever business you're running, when I ran Carl's Jr. and Hardy's, I didn't try and think about what burgers I wanted to eat. I was trying to think about what burgers other people Meaning wanted to other eat. Other people's needs. And, and, and how to give it to them at a price they could afford, right? right. So if, you, if you're going to succeed as a, in a capitalist economy, you can only do so by meeting the needs of other people. 
by giving them what they want at a price they can afford to pay. And that's, you know, if you think, if you think about a grocery store, right, a grocery store filled with hundreds, if not thousands of products, at least in the United States, right? All these products and each one of them, right, they're trying to, they're screaming on the shelves for you. Each one of them trying to convince you, there's an entrepreneur behind it trying to convince you that they have a product that you need at a price you can afford. Right. And so that you end up with this incredible abundance because everybody is constantly trying to figure out how to meet the needs of other people to, to make their own success. And the, the better you are at doing that, the more successful you will be. I'm not mad at Henry Ford, you know, for, I mean, look what he did. Look at all the cars that everybody drives, right? This incredible, uh, incredible uh, invention is, is mass marketing or Jeff Bezos right. inventing the greatest distribution system in history or Steve Jobs with the iPhone. My God, who would have imagined we'd have something like the iPhone? In a socialist country, it's just the opposite. Explain that. It's not about meeting people's needs. It's it's about greed. Let's say in a in a socialist well, economy, it's about, isn't, they would say it's it's about fairness and having government decide what is fair by distributing things in what they perceive to be the fair way. So let's think about that. So let, yeah, let yeah. let's say in a socialist economy, what are you doing? Well, you're competing for whatever goods or services the government makes available. Right. The government controls the economy, either all means of production directly or through regulation and taxes. It's the gut, you're always trying to please the government. Let's say for example, you know, Reagan uses the, the, he says the best example for comparing socialism and capitalism is the production of food. You know, in our country, you have these incredible grocery stores. In Venezuela, the shelves are empty. Same mm -hmm. thing about the Soviet Union back then. So if you're in line for bread or you're in line for food, or even if it's medical care, whatever you're in line for, when you're in a socialist country, you're not thinking about how to get something for the person in front of you or behind you in line. You're thinking about how to get the most for yourself when you get to the end of that line. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're focused on you. You're not focused on other people. And how do you get the most when you get to the end of the line? You get the most by satisfying the people in power. You get the most by being useful to the elites in the government who can make, you can, you can do better by becoming an elite or by meeting the so, needs so the, of elite than you can by meeting the needs of your fellow men and women. So the free market, if I'm understanding you, allows, is the best way to meet other people's needs. It, what you're saying. The capitalism, free markets are yeah. outward looking. You're looking out to meet so, the needs of other people. Socialism is inward looking. You're trying to figure out how to get the most for yourself from a limited supply of goods or services the government provides. So let's think, uh, take China here, because it's obviously, uh, the near peer competitor in the United States, not just from a security standpoint, but economic standpoint, they have seen tremendous growth year over year for decades now. Uh, they have provided opportunity and wealth and enhanced people's lives from you know the village to the city, uh, unlike anything we've seen before. Communist system. Um, they've taken from the free market what they wanted but certainly have not in any way libera uh, liberalized their political system. Andy, just try to organize your full-throated endorsement of the free market with what we're seeing from China, how you think about that. Sure, it's, you know, there's a, there's a great graph, and I, I wish I would have brought it so we could show it here, but there's a great graph that it was- we'll Put it in our notes, you could send it my way, okay. It, it was prepared by Angus Madison, and now the Angus Madison Foundation, who he's a historical economist, and he takes GDP per capita from the year zero through to current time. And you can see after World War II, you see Japan shoot straight up ahead right. of Western Europe. You see Western Europe shoot up after World War II with the fall of the monarchies. 
you see uh, Eastern Europe shoot up after the fall of the oh, Soviet yeah. Union, and you see China shoot up after it adopts red capitalism. Now, it has improved the lives of people in China, but you got to remember the billionaires in China are on the Politburo. The billionaires in China are the people with political power. Now, down below that, they do let people own businesses to some extent. You can't get too big, but you can try and improve your life. Nonetheless, if you look at the people in China, GDP per capita in China is about $16,000 a year. In the US, it's $68,000 a year. It's about $40,000 a year in South Korea, and it's but, higher than that in Japan. But, but the, so you've, yeah. you've, they have lifted, they've, they've done better right. than they were doing. And starting from zero, you know, that's a pretty good percentage exactly. gain. Right. They've done better, but they're, they're it, and now, my opinion is that they will now, because they're pulling back on the free market, uh, their economy will start so it, to move in a different direction. You're saying they won't be able to sustain it. No. Red capitalism can only take it so far. Yes. Interesting. Okay. And, you know, even within our country, and I know this is what you discuss a lot when you speak to students and testify before Congress and other places, is how much government should involve itself in the free market. And particularly, uh, you're well known for labor issues, uh, minimum wage, for example. Uh, Give us your philosophy on that approach. There is a debate even within conservative circles, uh, market fundamentalism, which is to say, let the market work its will. It will drive the best outcomes for everybody. Others saying with the rise of populism, some of which we saw under uh, President Trump in the conservative movement saying, no, government actually needs to involve itself in, in healthcare, uh, in education, in other places. What is, what is your approach in terms of the role of government uh, in, in the market that you just kind of outlined is, is so critical to the, to the outcomes we seek? Well, government is essential to capitalism. You can't really have capitalism without a court system, without laws, uh, you know, without uh, a leveling of the playing field. Uh, but, but too much government kills capitalism. And many of these government programs have exactly the opposite impact of what you would expect them to have. For example, raising the minimum wage. My position has always been, look, I don't think there should be a minimum wage. I think the free market is the best at not only driving wage growth, but creating jobs at the same time, which is what we saw in 2018 and 19 mm -hmm. under President mm -hmm. Trump. But if you've got to have a minimum wage, have one that doesn't kill entry-level jobs. Or what sense does it make to raise the wages, everybody's wages, but you've got more people unemployed? And the Congressional Budget Office, which leans left, I mean, they're a bunch of Keynesians. So when they, when, when they say something, it's probably left-leaning. But they came out with a report recently saying that if you raise the minimum wage to uh, $15 an hour, it would kill 1.4 million jobs. Because what do employers do? Yeah, they're going to either reduce the number of employees, uh, they're going to try and hire more experienced employees because of what they're paying, or they're going to automate. They're going to go to automation, which you can increasingly do. And that's going to happen anyway, but it shouldn't happen this fast. So you're going to, but last year they came out with a report that said if you had a $15 minimum wage, it would reduce family income by $8 billion. So why would you pass, why, in the interest of trying to help workers, why would you pass something that reduced income $8 billion and lost 1.4 million jobs? But, let, let me channel those advocates of sure. minimum wage uh, increasing, because they would say in the absence of mandating the CEO of Carl's Jr. and Hardee's to raise the minimum wage to whatever number, $15, what's been discussed of late, those workers won't see a salary increase. In other words, uh, the disparity of wealth, uh, getting more wealth uh, money in the pockets of uh, lower income uh, workers 
won't happen unless government steps in and says you need to have a living wage. What's your response to that? So let's let's look at what happened in 2017, 18, and 19 uh, until the until the hit until the pandemic hit. President Trump cut taxes, reduced regulation, very Reagan-esque. Fo focused on domestic energy, also something very Reagan-esque, and and businesses responded incredibly. Uh, you had after the tax cuts, we had 24 straight months where job openings exceeded the number of people unemployed. By most months, by a million, we had never had one month since they started recording the data where job openings exceeded people unemployed. Under President Trump, we had 24 consecutive months. Under Obama, zero. And why didn't it work under Obama? He had stimulus and he- and, well, and, and Let me, let me, let okay, me go ahead, ahead. just to answer the rest yeah, of your question. Yeah, yeah. What that drove was, job, was wage growth. We had 20 straight months, ending with the end of the recession, with the uh, pandemic, of 3% plus wage growth. There were zero months post-recession under Obama where wage growth hit 3%. And wage growth for low-wage workers was higher than wage growth for higher wage Say workers. Say one more time. During 2018, 2019, wage growth increased or was higher percentage basis uh, for lower income workers than higher income workers. It was harder to find a blue collar worker than it was to find a white collar worker for the first time in decades. And the percentage of growth was 3% plus for everybody, but it was more than 3% plus uh, for these low wage workers. Well, so what did that result in? Well, we had family income increased by the most. It's increased since the 60s, 6.8% to $68,700, a record high. Hmm. Poverty decreased the most. It's decreased since 1959 when they started tracking the data. 1.3 percentage points to 10.5%. And income increased more and poverty decreased more for Blacks, Hispanics, and Asians than it did for whites. This was an incredible, incredible economic period. And we saw two years in a row where income inequality, the bugaboo of the progressive left, decreased two years in a row. So this is what happens when you encourage businesses to grow when they compete for employees. That competition for employees raises wages. It's just like anything else. Demand increases the cost of things. Demand for labor increases the cost of labor. Now, if you stick in a mandatory wage, rather than seeing jobs grow, rather than seeing competition for employees go grow, what you see is employers cutting back on the number of their employees. So fundamentally, see, the business isn't doing better. Yeah, this, this is the, 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 the minimum wage. Art Lapper says this too, and I think he said it in one of these podcasts, is that this is the worst thing for, for impoverished workers, for people that are low wage workers, for blacks in particular. Uh, the minimum wage is a job killer. And, uh, and it hurts them the most. If you're going to have a minimum wage, and uh, you know, apparently we have to for political reasons because people don't seem to get their, to, to grasp the damage that it does, at least have one that doesn't kill entry-level jobs. You, know, you can raise it from 725. Nobody, look, nobody's making 725. Just drive down the street in your neighborhood. Because go, just, there's too many jobs. Go, buy, go buy a fast food restaurant. They're, they're, if, if the minimum you're going to see is, We'll, you know, we'll, we'll pay you $10 an hour. I saw signs the other day that said $50 to come in for an interview. Mm. I mean, you know, nobody's, nobody's out there um, uh, un, unable to find a job that pays well in excess of the current minimum wage. But $15 an hour would kill jobs and be very bad for the One economy. more question on this, and I want to hit on healthcare, and then we're going to have to go to sure. lightning round. I could talk to you about domestic policy all day, but we're going to be out of time. Um, what about stimulus? How does stimulus impact a business's decision to hire or not to hire. Yeah, B businesses don't grow and you want growth. You don't want temporary employees, you want permanent employees. 
businesses don't grow based on temporary revenue. For example, if you had a restaurant and you had a competitor across the street and his restaurant burned down and he had insurance and it would be open again in a year. Well, for a year, you'd get a lot more money in the door, but you know that's going to go away in a year. Well, it's the same with, and so you wouldn't grow your business. You wouldn't invest in just expanding it. it. You just pocket it. Well, it's the same thing with, with, with this, this government stimulus. Businesses know they're going to have to operate under normal circumstances at some point. This government largesse can't continue forever. And when it stops, they don't want to be stuck with a big debt or a big facility or a bunch of employees that they have to lay off. So you're, it, it's not going to stimulate, it never stimulates the kind of growth it didn't under Obama, it won't under Biden. It never stimulates the kind of growth that the Keynesians, the liberal economists expect. Um, so it's, it's so you not look at, a you look at you know, the $800 billion that the Obama administration put into policy, uh, in, in, you know, a, a stimulus back in 2009, compare that to Trump era policies, uh, you know, deregulation, or, or Reagan tax era reform, policies. Or Reagan era policies. Um, and, and that's a difference you see: sustainable, continued growth versus, you know, a sugar uh, high. A sugar high. That's overused, okay. but it, it really applies here. <laughs> one, one more on policy that gets caught up in this conversation, understandably, because it's so important, particularly as uh, this country continues to wrestle with the pandemic, COVID. Where does healthcare come in in terms of a right, uh, an entitlement for workers? Uh, that was just you know we talked about minimum wage. Whatever you settle on as minimum wage, when should that worker have uh, the confidence and the security of healthcare? Well, I think that the great majority of Americans have that. Uh, there, there is a there's a group that kind of gets caught in the middle. You've got you've got people who have jobs with healthcare, right? And th and that's the great majority. Then you've got people on Medicaid, low wage workers. There is. There is a which is for the poor. That's, yes, that's yes. healthcare for the poor. So between the poor and these people that have jobs with healthcare, you do have a group of people that we need to figure out how to cover. Uh, but I don't think we really need to. We really need to change the entire system as as we did with Obamacare to, to make sure those people get healthcare coverage. What we really need to focus on, and I, I actually had a student at Davidson College when I was speaking there ask me about this and say, don't you Steph think- Curry's famous school in North yeah, Carolina, exactly. okay. He came in and said, he, he got up, he heard my lecture on capitalism and socialism. And rather than getting up and challenging that, he gets it, don't you think healthcare is a right? How can you say all this stuff? People don't, and well, people aren't dying in the streets. It's not true. You, you go to a hospital, they, it's illegal for them not to treat you. So there aren't people dying in the street. But I said, how about, let, let I don't know whether healthcare is a right. It's not in the it's not a constitutional right, right, but is it a human right? Well, we could argue about that. So, but let's focus on what we do agree on. And uh, he said, "Well, yeah, let's do that." I said, "Okay, so would you agree with me that we need to lower the cost of healthcare but increase the quality of healthcare? Because Medicaid is it's not very good healthcare. Uh, you know, it doesn't cost much, but you're kind of getting what you pay for. We need to increase the quality and decrease the price." He said, "Yes, that's what we need to do." I said, well, do you know what the only thing in human history that has actually increased quality and decreased prices? The only thing in human history that has increased quality and decreased prices. Yes. Okay. And I said, if anybody else in the audience knows, don't tell this guy. And I, he's standing there looking. He's a smart kid. He's standing there looking at me. And he's, okay. he said, finally, he says, no, I, I don't know. He said, competition. Hmm. Competition is the only thing that increases quality and decreases price because everybody's striving to give you a better quality product at a lower price, because that's how they'll succeed in life. And he kind of looked at me and I said, you want to put government in this. And the only thing we know with government, we know two things, quality will go down, price will go up. We know it will cost more 
and it will be worse. Cost of taxpayer more, not the individual beneficiary. Exactly. Sure. The, co the cost of healthcare will go up. Right. Eventually, we all bear that cost. Sure. Sure. So I say the cost will go up, the quality will go down. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to put government in place of competition? And he looked at me for a little while, and then he just walked out of the room. I mean, this, the, the, <laughs> so it wasn't the aha moment, huh? No, the, the problem is you can't, you know, young people are not being educated on the advantages of capitalism, this incredible system that they've inherited, this incredible system for which they will soon be the caretakers. And I always end my, my speeches at colleges and universities with um, the Reagan quote, uh, that freedom is always but one generation away from extinction. And I, and I tell you, I said, look, you millennials out there, I hope it's not your generation. They're uh, the caretakers. You know, they have you, you, pretty soon you are the caretakers. And there's also another Reagan quote where he talks about- You've uh, entered the lightning round without me introducing it. So <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll pivot to it. Lightning round where you give us, as you've given us your favorite quote uh, by President Reagan, uh, favorite speech by President Reagan, and favorite book on President Reagan. Carry okay. on. Let me give you my, uh, so now I have a quote from my generation, right? Okay. That was for the millennials. The one for my generation is, uh, if we don't defend the free enterprise system, uh, and the quote part is, where will we tell our children and our children's children that we were and what we were doing on the day freedom died? And that's, I think, as for, for a baby boomer uh, addressing the millennial generation, I think that's the right comparison. We have to be the ones to tell them what this means, why it's important, how it really works. Not what they've been told in school because the education system, we lost the education system. It's been gone for decades. So they're not learning anything. Uh, and, uh, and we have to tell them and then they have to understand it's their responsibility to preserve it. And, uh, and so anyway, those are my- All right, so those we, are got, my we got the quotes. What was the next Reagan speech? <laughs> We've got a speech. I, I know where you're going because we talked about this beforehand, but I'm excited to hear it. 1977 speech in November, 1977 at Hillsborough College. Hillsdale or Hillsdale, Hillsdale. Hillsdale College in honor of uh, Ludwig von Mises, the famous economist. It was called Whatever Happened to Free Enterprise. And uh, it was an amazing speech. Height of the Carter administration. Reagan had been a yeah. nominee, uh, didn't defeat Gerald Ford. He was thinking about running for president when this was given. And he, he told, he's, we're going to cut taxes. We're going to focus on free enterprise. We're going to free up businesses. It was an amazing speech. You know, profit is not a dirty word. The business sector needs to step up. It was, uh, it was a speech you could give today with very few changes. We'll, we'll link to it because you're the first of all of our Reaganism guests to point to that 1977 Hillsdale College speech. Let's wrap it up with your favorite book on President Reagan. Uh, it would be Abortion uh, and the National Conscience. Huh. It's a, it, was a re it was published in 1983. It was the only book published by a sitting president. Andy Puzzer, thank you so much for being on the show. Great to be here, uh, Wonderful to have you here, and we look forward to welcoming you back. Thank you.